Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, there's a new function on the task module, so it's task completed. This is kind of like how promise.resolve works in JavaScript. You can think of this as it works really well for those occasions when you're launching a task to do something, and you know right away that this is going to fail because of some error condition or something like that. So you can just mark it as completed with its result, like saying this is an error. There's a a link to the PR where you can see some code examples of how you can use this. Nice. Uh, In in Elixir 1.12.2 was released. This is a minor patch release, really. It's uh, just fixing a couple of bugs, uh, ensuring that deprecated macros are emitting the correct warnings. There are some enhancements, though. Uh, So, for example, there's a huge speed up for a large number if your project has a large number of dependencies, like we're talking about 50 plus kind of dependencies. So that's pretty great. Really like that one. And and the notes that they have there are compile most recently changed files first, uh, and then the the speed up. So speeding up the time taken to load dependencies. Good little minor release. If you're on 1.12, go ahead and patch it up. So I saw a PR come in for a thing called Live View Lifecycle Hooks. And it looks like there's a bit of things going on here, but it boils down to you can basically attach a hook onto your socket during the mount. And you could attach it to any kind of mount, any kind of handle event, any kind of handle params. And then you can pattern match on those things and do special logic based on what happened on those hooks. And then a follow-up PR closely after that added an on-mount macro to automatically do something on the mount. So this sounds like something that they're adding as a convenience so that if you need to always do something on mount, like authentication, for example, you can kind of make it look like a plug and say, hey, every time this mounts, assign these default things and get this user and make sure that they're always an admin, right? So it's basically these conveniences and it feels a lot like plug. So interested to see where this goes. And I just, I feel like they're kind of like reining it in based on a couple of weeks ago when we talked about live session. So it's, it's kind of like they're reining in the live views to kind of feel like plug and work well with live view. So interested to see how this continues to evolve. Yeah. And looking at the sample code, it looks like you can call on mount multiple times in a row like you would with plug. So it is interesting. I'll have to look at that some more to see how that actually feels. Y'all smell that? I smell Phoenix 1.6 coming around the corner (laughs) soon. I think that's what this is. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, speaking of that, so there was another function that was added. It's a new form 4 slash 4. If you're familiar with working with uh, Phoenix and how sometimes the form helper, you'd have to, you'd open it with a function and you have to close it manually in HTML to say, like to close your form tag. It just didn't really feel natural. And they've been working to try and fix that. And this looks like some major effort towards that. And it does change up the syntax pretty significantly. And I'm still trying to kind of get my head around it. So do you guys have any more insight on this? Well, I know that they're they're coming out with that sigil h helper right that's going to validate that all of your tags need to close so they had to do something here to make it so that you weren't just having some random ending form tag in the middle of your code and from what i understand and i could be completely wrong so i acknowledge this up front it's a dot form right it starts with a dot and i think what the dot is is calling a function so since you're already auto importing these helpers 
it just starts with a dot. Otherwise, it could be like Phoenix dot helpers dot form four, right? And then it might not feel so weird. But the fact that it starts with a dot because it's auto imported is a little bit funny. And maybe it'll become like the router thing because it's like you never just call the routes like user path. You always call like routes dot user path. Maybe it'll become like that. Maybe it'll be like helpers dot form four because it's weird to just say dot form four. Interesting. And going back to the original problem there, right, where you just open up the form tag and then close it manually with with an HTML, you know, closing form tag. The way that they're solving that here, like what Kate said, is probably this is with the H sigil coming in from Surface. But the the way that you're able to pass in the form, you know, uh, struct uh, to all of the ch- you know the the children helpers to create the tags, is that you you do dot form and then the new part is let equals and then you define your your variable that variable could be like user form and then you use user form in the tags inside of that that form helper that's a good change i really like that i agree seeing the dot everywhere i don't know (laughs) pre what is it one phoenix one four i think pre phoenix one four they imported all the all the all the routes Right. So you could just do user path, whatever, and it would just work. And then they changed it to just be an alias of routes dot users path. Why do the same thing here? I, f- I feel like there might be a more technical reason why they're where it's a dot form, if our assumption is correct. And those are just like function calls. I want to say there's got to be a better reason. Well, no, I don't, I don't know. We'll see. Maybe we can invite one, uh, someone on and uh, uh, we can help educate everybody, including ourselves, <laughs> on how this works. David, you joke about like in the next version of Phoenix coming out, but I, it really does feel like it's going to be any time now because you've got like a lot of these big things have come out, like this H sigil and a Webpack asset pipeline rewrite and live session and with this new Form 4. So you can see that there's a lot of stuff happening and it really does feel like it's leading up to a release. Yeah. I don't know. Phoenix 1.6, maybe that's not a big enough number. Maybe this is Phoenix (laughs) 2.0. Yeah. Speaking of Phoenix, I also saw that there is a new generator to add a mailer when you do phoenix.new so you can opt out with dash dash no mailer so this will add the swoosh library into your application so i haven't had a chance to look at this yet but is that mailer you know like with the authentication generator it generates a lot of templates and code around you know forgot your password and things like that would this do things like send you an email to say a welcome email and a forgot your email kind of actually send out those emails. Is that what this is kind of hooking into? Do you know? No, this is, this is just setting up like the, you know, like your web module where you just do a bunch of imports and stuff. This doesn't actually set up any email templates, doesn't set up any emails themselves. It's just the boilerplate for having your main mailer module. And that's where most of your, you know, your, your mail is, is orchestrated. Yeah, you just leverage leverage swoosh there. So there's no yeah no setup for for any actual emails to go out or any as as far as I'm seeing in the PR. There's no integration with with the uh, Phoenix auth stuff either. And next up, Alex Kutmos released a new version of Prom EX, and this is one dot three dot zero. So Prom EX is like a Prometheus metrics exporter. So it like it exposes metrics from your Elixir application, which it helps to gather up, especially from telemetry events with Ecto and Phoenix. And then it helps expose that in a way that Prometheus expects to find it. So Prometheus is a separate thing that sits outside of your system. It's actually written in Go, I believe. But it pulls your system 
at a given URL and to gather this data out. And then you can expose that to a Grafana dashboard or other kind of visualizing tool. And Grafana is like the go-to one for that. So as I understand it, the new release of PromX library is adding support for GraphQL metrics. Just like you get with Ecto and Phoenix, you can get some built-in metrics and information around your GraphQL absinthe endpoints. So be sure to check that out. He also wrote up a great blog post that you can find on the fly.io blog. It's monitoring your Fly apps using Prometheus. And he goes through a blog post that shows how to do it along with sample projects of how to actually get this all exported using a hosted Grafana or like a community hosted one. Part of the reason is because Fly has built-in metrics collection uh, as part of the platform. So he's showing how to take advantage of that. There's a really cool article though. One thing that I think is really cool is that he actually publishes dashboards for you in the PromX library. So it's like in just a matter of minutes, you can be completely set up, be gathering metrics and be visualizing all of these metrics with little to no effort. Good job, Alex. All right. Also up in the news, Voitech Mock released a new project called Elixir-Run. Voitech was the person, by the way, that was behind Mix.install. So it seems that Voitech is on is on a mission to make Elixir run easier <laughs> for everybody. Uh, so thanks for that, Voitech. What this is, is it's Erlang and OTP plus Elixir plus IEX plus Mix in a single executable for Linux, macOS, and Windows. So you just run Elixir. He flagged this as very experimental. So with that in mind, uh, it looks like it's still pretty uh, something that's pretty cool to, to play with. Sounds pretty great. Like Elixir-run and you throw whatever you want at it. And it, of course, is compatible with mix.install. So you could <laughs> Elixir-run my Phoenix application with you know <laughs> OTP and all, all of the things in there. And it should work. <laughs> so that's pretty cool. Something else I saw was there's an Elixir GitHub Actions CI example repo. So Erlang Ecosystem Foundation has a GitHub Actions project for your GitHub Actions to reference so it can have some built-in abilities. So what I liked about this is I found this repo where it's a sample of just saying, here's how you can put it all together into a complete set of GitHub Actions for your Elixir application. I think it's a great resource to just be able to... like If you're wanting to get started with Elixir on GitHub Actions... You can just totally check out this repo. It shows you how to walk through and do all of it. And it's using the official Erlang Ecosystem Foundation action. Totally something to check out if you're wanting to do stuff with CI on GitHub. I'll point out here, the GitHub Actions and CI pipeline to properly cache dependencies, dialyzer, all that stuff could easily be like 50 to 100 lines of YAML. And I know you're thinking to yourself, I love YAML so much, that doesn't bother me. But for those that don't like YAML so much and setting up all the CI stuff, just check out the repo. Like you'll, you'll see, uh, let me count here. It's so, it's so small for six, it's six lines, six lines to do this, you know, and if you want a caching with there, uh, look at that. It's like 10 lines. And boom, you're done. That's uh, that's not bad at all. So, uh, great job, uh, Earl F for for getting uh, getting the Beam setup action up and running. And thanks, uh, thanks to this repo for laying out the succinct and simple examples. And last up, Etso 016 was released. This is an ETS adapter that allows you to use Ecto schemas in ETS tables. Looks like this release adds is nil support and queries. We talked about uh, Etso just recently because David brought it up again when we were 
he used it on a project where he was experimenting with it. And it is just a really cool little project. And it's just nice to see that uh, like the little query abilities continue to be developed. Yeah. My, my only complaint, like a lot of Elixir's libraries this, this day, is uh, it's still pre 1.0. So, you know, it's, it's <laughs> 0.1.6, which you would think that's really unstable or really, you know, like work in progress kind of thing. But tell you, like, at least for what's there. Etso is is solid, uh, like a lot of Elixir pre-1.0 libraries. And that's it for the news. Today, we're being joined by our special guest, Kurt Mackey. Kurt, welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks for having me. I'm excited about this interview. I've been looking forward to this one for some time. So full disclosure, uh, for some of you who may not know this, some time ago, I took a job at a company called Fly.io. And my podcast, the Thinking Elixir podcast, has been completely run separately. This is there's no commercial endorsements or anything like that. But I, for some time, I've wanted to be able to have Kurt come on to talk about what Fly is doing because I just think it's so interesting, and it's the reason I took the job. It's a platform, and Elixir just kind of loves it. It's just kind of they glom together super well, and so I'm glad to have Kurt on to kind of give us some background and info on what Fly is and how it actually works. Before we jump into all that. Kurt, why don't you just tell us a little bit more about yourself, like where you live and what your relationship is with Fly? Sure. I'm Kurt. I live in in uh, a suburb of Chicago. Um, if you're in Chicago, I say a suburb of Chicago. If you're not in Chicago, I just say Chicago because there's a little bit of snootiness there. <laughs> I'm one of the one of the founders of Fly. Um, we actually started the company back in 2017, um, and before that, I worked on. A couple of maybe relevant things. I helped build a website called ArsTechnica.com way back in like, I started working on that in college. Ultimately, that sold to Condé Nast in like 2008. From there, I went and built a company called MongoHQ, which we renamed to Compose. We did hosted databases. Um, and so I have a, a lot of full stack and database experience. I think at ours, I was like, I went to RailsConf in like 2008, which I, I assume some of you might have also been there. I don't really know. And I think I was notably the person there using a ThinkPad because I was trying Linux out at that point and not a Mac of some kind, which got some attention. It was kind of funny. <laughs> so yeah, I'm in Chicago and I've worked on kind of full stacky and, and backend and infrastructure stuff for entirely too long at this point, but I, say, I can't seem to get away from it. Uh, so I must actually like it. <laughs> That's cool. I've used I've used Compose a couple of times in the past, so thanks for that. It's a great tool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was. Uh, so IBM owns it now, and it's not as good as it used to be. I think I can say that at this point. I'm past my NDA or whatever. <laughs> it's, uh, most of the people, most of the really good people there are onto other things at this point. But it was um, it was fun to build, and it seemed really important at the time. It's interesting sometimes hearing about companies like that. I, I know that that's not a new thing, right? Like the the startup kind of uh, gritty kind of nature of just like bootstrapping it. I just got to get it to work and got to get it to be awesome. And you, you, you get a certain kind of people, you know, to work on that. And, and then once it achieves success, it seems like the chances of that company culture just changing completely is yeah. really high. And I, I, I don't, I don't understand it yet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so somebody, the, the company sells out or a new group of, of employees come in or a leadership comes yep. in, you know, uh, and it really changes, changes everything about how the, how the company works at that point. With that said, I don't want to spoil it, but maybe we can talk about how fly is in that regard. We'll leave that for later though. We need to know about what Fly is first. So tell, yes. tell me about Fly. Fly exists to run apps close to users. 
when I say apps, like it could mean broadly, I mean, full stack apps or things with databases. Our general reason for being, in fact, it's funny, back when we first started, the initial idea was like CDNs kind of suck for developers. And maybe we, if we could build a CDN that developers really got a lot of value out of, it'd be pretty interesting, right? It'd be a thing that we could work on for a very long time, maybe get bigger and do some of those cultural shifts along the way. But over time, we sort of started realizing that one of the problems with CDNs for developers is it's just this whole other layer that maybe not isn't necessary. And maybe some of the problem here is developers just don't have the infrastructure they need to get apps where they need to be. And thus, they ha- they're kind of get a CDN inflicted on them, which does a little bit of what they need doing, but at a great cost in some, in some ways. So ultimately, you can think of us like like Heroku, but global, right? Like a, like a place to stick an app and then run it actually everywhere, whether users are in, we we get a lot of customers in Sydney because there's not a lot of really good developer UX in Australia, for example. So we have customers that have an audience in one region. We have customers that have audiences spanning like all of the English speaking countries. We have a kind of a big, broad range of customers around the world, as you might mm-hmm. expect, because we're kind of a global service. All right, so I want to pull something apart there that you that you mentioned, which is a little bit new to me, or at least the concept is a little bit new to me. And so maybe we can help out our listeners too. You mentioned that Fly is trying to be more like a, a better developer experience uh, version of, of CDN. I want to define C- CDN here. That's that's content distribution network, right? Yes. The, the way that I view CDNs and I've always used CDNs is strictly in the matter of hosting images, maybe some text, some of all static stuff, just static stuff, right? And that CDN is globally networked, right? Or, or, or distributed, rather, I guess that's the point of it. So that way, uh, images that are closer to the West Coast, you know, get served up from a server on the West Coast. But that was just the static stuff. Right. In my experience and all the apps that I've ever worked in or heard about, the application is still being served from like a central source somewhere. And that might be distributed too, but not as much. It, it, it would be distributed in the sense of like, well, everybody uses tends to use AWS. So yes. you'd always hear US East 1. It's, so that means Ohio. Like it's, yes. it's served in Ohio and pretty much only Ohio. <laughs> and that's it. Okay. If that's my understanding of CDN, how does how does Fly break that understanding? How does Fly improve upon that? It's a it's a fun question because I've also been pitching investors uh, in the last six months, and the way this is maybe one of the few times it's useful to talk to investors the same way as developers, right? The way I frame this for investors is CDNs have solved what I call like the one to many static file problem. So if you have a static file and you need to you need to show it to a thousand people. CDNs are really good at that. Mm-hmm. They haven't solved much beyond that. And one of the, the historically, the reason you'd use a CDN is so you could get some kind of content within a few milliseconds of a user. Fly doesn't differ. What we're doing is I think we're going deeper on that concept. So the idea here is that if it's valuable to get an image close to people, it's actually probably valuable to get like a row in a database close to people as well, because there's a lot of reasons both for resiliency and performance, it's useful to have what users need to see within a few milliseconds of them. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, it's performance. Ultimately, the hardest possible thing to solve in any kind of well-optimized application is the speed of light, right? If you do run in US East 1, if your app is in Ohio, I think it's 200 milliseconds plus away from 92% of the world's population. It's actually far enough that people will notice when they when they load up a page or do something interesting. And so... 
part of the answer here is what we're doing with fly infrastructure is we're we're helping make apps faster that couldn't traditionally use CDNs. So things things that are very dynamic, things that do chat, uh, live view apps. That's that's a big one for for this audience. Mm-hmm. Um, and even some some really interesting ones where I mentioned specifically the one to many viewer problem that CDNs solve where I've made an image or I've made a video and every all thousand people are going to see exactly the same thing. What they don't really solve is this one-to-one issue where it's like I've created this, call it a postcard or a video specifically for a friend of mine or something, and I want it to be fast to load for them. They don't, CDNs don't really help with that because they, they kind of still have a, have a latency cost when you first view one of these things. Mm-hmm. Is that helpful? It can, I could go very long. No, that's, <laughs> that's, that's really great. But I would like to hear a little bit more comparison of the common platforms that other folks may have heard of. So I mentioned AWS before, but there's also Heroku, Azure, DigitalOcean, Linode. What is Fly doing that is way better than than those services? Kind of the core value we give people is almost any app will actually run in multiple regions on top of Fly. And so if you were to launch on almost any other service, I heard a statistic, this might be made up, but it's convenient. But I heard a statistic <laughs> that something like 0.5% of AWS customers run in more than one region. It's not because it's not valuable. It's not because people don't want to span regions. It's because the infrastructure is not built for that. And so the big difference for us is we're what I call like multi-region native. You can ship your arbitrary even really boring, even like 10-year-old Rails app on top of Fly and actually run it in multiple regions. It'll work. We have tooling for that. Yeah. <laughs> so that's that's really how we differ. Yeah, it's, that's that's pretty great. You mentioned AWS, uh, how they're not built for, for multi-region. Yeah. They often talk about like multiple data centers, right? Because like whenever like you have the, the high-profile outage, right? Where it's like, yeah. I need to be in multiple data centers just because like when there's an outage, you know, half of the internet is dead. Yeah, that's because everybody's on US one or US East one, right? Okay, yeah. I feel like I can't talk about AWS and how complicated they are without also mentioning a person named Corey Quinn uh-huh. on Twitter. So fantastic guy, very funny to listen to. He works for a cloud economist. That's what he calls himself. Anyway, I won't tell you much much more about him. You need to go experience him yourself. But. <laughs> One of the things I learned from him, okay, so they, fine, they have a great infrastructure, but they have, they're, they're even better at charging you for that infrastructure <laughs> in many different ways that you may not be uh, aware of. So, like, for example, if you wanted to do multi-region deployments with them, one, it's pretty complicated to, to do that, and they have services that'll charge more to make that a little bit more simple. But there's additional charges underneath that, which is like charging for ingress and egress between those regions if, you're at, if your app needs to talk to itself, but across those regions, right? And by talking, I mean, like, that's not just your app talking to itself, like into another deployment, deployed version of its app. It could be the central database that is only in US East 1 or something like that, or Redis, which might be in only US West 1. And there's a lot of data that crosses those boundaries. It may not surprise many folks, but AWS can start out pretty cheap, but it can get very, very expensive <laughs> without you realizing how you got there. All right. So that's that's enough of that. So thank you for, for explaining Fly uh, to me uh, because that, I, I needed to know that too. And, and I think that that sets it up well for the rest, uh, for the rest of the interview. Cool. I think I'm not an unusual case where I'm a developer who I love code, right? I love to think about the application, how it's structured, and how I can deliver value to users. And I've had to, just as a necessity, buy a bunch of DevOps books so I could understand how to host this, how to make it so that it's a good, reliable experience to my, for my customers. 
you know, like there are whole courses and you can hire consultants that are AWS specific people because it is so complicated. I've spent like, you know, full time days and days like, okay, getting Kubernetes set up on, you know, Amazon's EKS, then getting all the services in there. It's like, yeah, I can do it. But man, that is not where I find my joy. That is not my sweet spot. That's what I found so refreshing about Fly. I never got far enough with AWS to figure out how to do these things. And I was able to do it like instantly with Fly. It's like, man, I'm not an unusual case. I know there are people who are like, I would love to be able to solve these problems too. I would love to maybe just kind of jump in and talk about Elixir and Fly because you know you're not an Elixir developer yourself, Kurt. So maybe you can clarify. Maybe actually you have done some stuff. I've seen some contributions you've made. So what is your story with Elixir and how did Fly and Elixir kind of come together at all? The funny segue from what you just said is I'm also a developer and I also just want to ship things and I also don't want to do DevOps. And now I'm two companies into automating DevOps for like (laughs) some (laughs) parallel universe version of me that still gets to build apps, right? Um, (laughs) Actually, Erlang, I remember way back at some point, I don't remember why, but I was, I tried to learn Erlang and I didn't really have any, any application for it at the time. It was like, this is cool. I'd love to learn this, but I don't have a, a thing to build. And so I spent a lot of time with Rails, which keeps coming up, but, but so, um, Elixir and particularly Phoenix have been on my radar for a while. Phoenix has always seemed like a really good, I think, next generation of Rails for people, for me at least. And so we've been paying attention to Phoenix for a while, but I'm not an Elixir developer. And I'm not even like, I can kind of fumble my way through a Phoenix project, but it's not, never really built anything in anger with it as much as fiddled around with it and played with different things. Despite I did, I have made pull requests to things like libcluster. Um, I think I made an ecto pull request at one point, mostly to enable IPv6, which is like a whole podcast all by itself. If you ever want to talk about IPv6, um, but. We sort of stumbled into this. One of the interesting things about building our infrastructure, um, particularly before we sort of had a strategy for databases, is there's not a lot of frameworks and runtimes that are really good at what I would call like distributed full stack, where the idea is that you can run multiple kind of full stack processes that are aware of each other and take advantage of that. And if you were to explain that, you'd kind of be like, well, except for Elixir and Phoenix, it's like it's an it's a natural fit for what we ended up, especially early on, what we ended up trying to do because clustering is so native and the the whole um, ability to call out to other processes across a cluster is just baked in and, and supported an important part of even Phoenix itself. And so what ultimately got me to Elixir is we were playing with different ways of having app processes communicate with each other. And outside the Elixir world, there's this cool tool called Nats that we kind of suggest to people. But it's it was it was so cool that all of this was just baked into Beam, really. But then Elixir and then Phoenix continued sort of that tradition and and gave us more primitives for for making things talk to each other. So despite not knowing Phoenix, I was able to take like a live view example of just a silly counter thing and build a distributed version of this where all the processes were aware of each other and able to make this this very kind of interesting globally distributed web application, again, despite not really knowing Elixir. If I were building something new from scratch, I would look really hard at Phoenix because I think it's it's not a thing I feel like I'm ever going to outgrow. I think all developers have this problem, right? Like we're worried we're going to outgrow whatever we're using. We're probably not. Like almost nobody's actually going to outgrow Heroku ever, but... A lot of people are like, I can't use Heroku apps. I'm going to get too complicated for that when I when I blow up to be like Facebook. So <laughs> it is a, it's it's a very cool stack for knowing you're probably not going to outgrow 
what you start with. So, so that that's great, and I I really agree that uh, Elixir uh, has really solid foundations with Beam. The the distributed story there is really interesting, and I personally have said like the same exact thing where I I never feel like I can outgrow Phoenix I'll, and Elixir. I'll, I'll always be able to leverage it because they provide so many escape hatches. And because I think that it has given itself, Elixir and Phoenix have given itself such a unique position, uh, I've seen uh, at least a couple of other services, infrastructure services, uh, pop up. Um, two of them that come to mind are GigaElixir and uh, Render, though Render is not specifically about Elixir or Phoenix. I just, I, I know that they support it. But GigaElixir even has Elixir in the name, pretty much. Um, so they're, they're designed a little bit better around the Elixir story. So, so tell me how, how fly, you know, differs there. What, what, what is something, what is something that you're really hoping to push forward here with the, uh, the Elixir community? I think there's two parts to how we differ and actually how we're similar. Heroku changed the world in a lot of ways where all companies that came after Heroku and learned from Heroku. I think the most important thing we learned is the power of giving developers a really nice user experience for, for self-servicing a lot of what used to be very complicated problems. A lot of new companies are focusing, for a lot of reasons, the easiest way to get people to use your platform is to focus on developers early when they first need to ship an app and, and show it to people. Mm-hmm. And so when you when you squint and you look at us and you look at Render and you look at GigaElixir, what you see a lot of is it's like it's really easy to get started. Like you can ship your Elixir, you can ship your Phoenix app in a couple of minutes. I actually think that we're not as easy as Gig Elixir, but kind of the, I'd, I'd say the philosophy is very similar. Is we want you to come, we want you to sign up, we want you to get an app going before you've left. Um, we don't want a big long sales process because we'd fail as a company if that was, if that was a requirement. I think the big differences are, are over time and particularly for us. So live view, I think is very important and fly is an incredibly good place to run live view. And this is by nature of being a distributed set of infrastructure for Phoenix applications. Mm-hmm. So LiveView really benefits from putting processes out close to people. And our big, the big difference between us and kind of anyone else is you can deploy a Phoenix app everywhere with LiveView with the same tooling used to get that initial version going. Mm-hmm. Under the covers, that difference is actually pretty huge. So we run on our own hardware in 18 regions at this point. Um, we have our own physical servers. A lot of these companies, uh, even Heroku at this point, are still running on top of AWS or on top of GCP. We we had to kind of build from the bottom up to make this work at all. And so, um, Interesting. yeah, so the initial UX is similar because this is how we get customers and this is how they get customers and this is how developers benefit. Um, kind of everything beyond that tip of the iceberg is very different. One of the things, again, we'll go back to how I talk to investors, but one of the things that I think is interesting about developer UX is that the developer UX to me seems really important for exposing what I'd call more powerful infrastructure. There's two ways to build, a, I think, a developer company. One is you can look at AWS and say, this is really hard to use. I'm going to make this easier for developers. And then the other is that um, you can look at developer UX as a way of, of giving developers new capabilities that they couldn't have replicated before. And so I think what makes us really special is we're giving people the, the developer UX they know, and then we're letting them take that way beyond what they could even self-service or what they could do with Kubernetes if the time came. I, I remember an early deployment of a live view app. You know, the, the story usually goes is it it worked wonderfully for me because I deployed it <laughs> near myself. And then some user 
you know, in Australia, usually for, for me, it says <laughs> this is too slow. You know, a click, it takes like a second to register. And that was some early learnings for a lot of folks, I think, deploying and maintaining live view apps is that UI centric live view hooks, you know, where right. you'd make the click and it goes back to the server just to make some CSS changes. You know, for a, a, a fly down or something was not the right decision. <laughs> it was a bad thing to do. It is. Uh, yeah. But you're saying that fly, because it's distributed, if I used fly and deployed, deployed that live view app to fly, I would have at least two instances in this case, one near me and then one in Australia. And that Australia user kind of avoids that bad user experience where, yeah, the, the clicks are taking, you know, a second or so to register. Yes. Got it. We have a demo of this exactly that we can put a link into, but it's basically just a counter. It's a live view button counter that's mm -hmm. based on someone's excellent tutorial. I just blanked on the company that built it. A very excellent tutorial for learning live view. And the one thing you said there I think is funny is obviously live view is not the right way to change CSS classes on a button, but it's also the first thing people try and it's the easiest way to accomplish this. We all get caught up sometimes in saying that's not the right way to do it frequently because the infrastructure is wrong. It's like, mm -hmm. it's not the wrong way to do it with the right infrastructure. And in a lot of cases, doing the simplest possible thing is exactly the right thing to be doing. Honestly, like one of my favorite things about LiveView is it keeps things, I think, under control for me in my head compared to going to this like Jamstack with like this fat JavaScript front end and, and trying to figure out the API and do all of that. It's much, much nicer to do the simple thing that might sound wrong, but we should ship apps that do things. We shouldn't worry too much about whether they're right or wrong. Point taken. Yeah, I agree. So you guys keep talking about distributing your apps into different regions, not like US West A, B, and C, but like US West versus US East. Does Flight give you something better than just distributing? Like, because for example, in, in Gig Elixir, you can distribute and you can have like a cluster and they natively support Elixir distribution that way. But if I were to deploy an app on US West and then do it on US East, it sounds like it would be really hard to actually cluster my beam, my nodes in that sense. So does does Fly help in that regard? We do. Um, and it kind of goes back to basically building from the ground up for this. So when you run an app on Fly, all the processes are in one private network. And they can also discover each other regardless of region. And so what happens, even on AWS, if you were to do this the naive way and spin up an app on AWS, you, you'd end up with a VPC in US East. And this, this applies to Gig Elixir and Render as well. You end up with kind of a private network in one region. And then if you want to run that app in two regions, what you actually have to do is run the app twice and then like figure out how to span those private networks so they can talk to each other again in private. So what Fly actually gives you is when you deploy an app, it goes into a private network. And there's a lot of cool stuff. I love our private networking. There's a lot of cool stuff we do by default there, including it's encrypted between VMs. So you don't have to worry about TLS or anything between your Elixir processes. And this, again, spans the globe. So when you have a process running in Atlanta and you have a process running in Paris and you have a process running in Sydney, they're all able to talk to each other as if they're running in the same data center. Which means that I think the Elixir config for our live view example was the, the lib cluster config was something like six lines. It was, it was not any different than running it on two instances in your local, local region. Yeah. So one thing I'll just mention there, like Kurt, you're alluding to some of these uh, networking things and just maybe it's worth just kind of peeling back the cover a little bit and kind of letting people know what's going on. It's like one, say I've got an app deployed in 
Australia, one in Chicago, and one in the UK. How does someone get routed to the nearest one to them? The story is kind of interesting because there's really like two parts to networking for an application. And one is kind of the thing the user touches. So when they go between their house and your application instance. And the other thing is behind the application. So it's how the application processes talk to each other or talk to the database. And so we we solved both of these for kind of a global setup. Um, one of the things that drove us to hardware early on is we wanted to take advantage of something called Anycast. Anycast is is a core internet technology. Um, it's part of BGP. And BGP is how the core internet routers all talk to each other, how they know to get a packet from point from like your phone to the data center that you happen to be running on in Virginia. Um, what Anycast is, is it lets you take a block of IP addresses, 256 or more, and announce them in multiple regions. And what happens when a packet for one of those IP addresses hits a router is the router says, hey, I have 12 possible places I can send this. I'm going to actually pick the one that's closest in internet terms and send it there. And closest in internet terms typically means the least number of hops between where I am and where it needs to go. The politics of the internet make this more complicated because closest in internet terms often gets changed into what's the cheapest place I can send it so I don't pay for bandwidth between these two places, which is not always the best choice. So the very first thing we started with was, hey, we want a user in Chicago to get routed to Chicago. Uh, we want a user in Sydney to get routed to Sydney. We're going to use Anycast to do this because for a lot of reasons, it's simpler in our way. Like most of what we end up doing is kind of reducing the scope of the problems we have to solve to keep things working and keep them in our brains. And so Anycast is the simplest way conceptually to do this. And so when a user connects to a Phoenix app on fly, we actually, what we do is we accept the connection. Uh, we route it to one of our, we call them edge edge kind of routers or proxies. Um, we accept the connection there. Those proxies are aware of where all your Phoenix processes are running. And what they'll do is they'll choose to route the connection to the one that's the nearest that has capacity. And so if you connect to Chicago, you have an instance in Chicago and you've overloaded it, we might send you to New Jersey or to San Jose or in worst case, send you to Sydney. We'll tend to try and make something happen, even if it's slower at that point. And then what happens from there is that's kind of the user-facing network, and that's the Anycast bit. Um, and that was, again, very important to us as part of when we talk about CDNs. CDNs all use Anycast to get you a combination of Anycast and DNS to get you routed. So we ended up having to build sort of CDN infrastructure to do that side of it. Behind the scenes, there's not exact, there's not like a pre-built thing for letting apps talk to each other across regions. There's not really like an Anycast type standard the internet supports for this. So we had to build um, what's typically called an overlay network, which means that we basically, we put your VMs on a phantom network that does span the public internet, but we do it through these encrypted wire guard tunnels. And for those who can't see, I'm waving my hands around to demonstrate all this. <laughs> so it's like the yeah, hand it illustrates it's it. literally hand yeah. wavy. <laughs> you just mentioned WireGuard there. I'm an, a Linux enthusiast, and I follow Linux development and stuff. And when I first learned about WireGuard, like, what is the the quick intro to what it is? Like, I would describe it as like a VPN that doesn't suck and is really fast. <laughs> yes. And it has, has its clients everywhere. <laughs> for us, WireGuard is a VPN that doesn't suck and is fast um, and has clients everywhere. The I think the really interesting part of WireGuard is the scope of WireGuard is very small. All WireGuard does is establishes a secure encrypted tunnel between two hosts. It doesn't do a lot of the um, things that make that turn kind of an encrypted protocol into a VPN service. 
It doesn't do like provisioning of users or certificates. There's not really like a drop-in replacement for OpenVPN with WireGuard, which is nice for us because we have to do kind of low-level network stuff with it. So we don't inherit all of this complexity uh, from, from the get-go. The other, WireGuard is baked into the Linux kernel at this point, which is why it's so fast. And it's fast enough for our purposes to use it as a as almost like a LAN replacement for an application that needs to talk to itself. You can talk over WireGuard or you can just talk over unencrypted um, Ethernet. And you probably won't notice the speed difference in the context of something like an Elixir app. And that's been a boon for us. WireGuard is really where I'd look if I needed to build an overlay network from scratch, which is what we had to do. <laughs> um, because it's, again, it's like it, they're all the components are there. And in our case, one of the really cool things is we were able to create a WireGuard mesh that apps on fly use to talk to each other. But then we can let you connect directly to your application's private network with this VPN-like connection um, from your desktop, which becomes, in Elixir terms, really interesting because it makes it incredibly simple to just talk to, like, with IEX directly to your Elixir processes. We have some content about how you might do this with different with different tools, uh, but WireGuard's amazing. And and um, actually, you should donate to WireGuard. It's one of those very pure open source efforts. You, the broad you, kind of everyone who has money to donate to open source would benefit from donating to WireGuard. That's cool. Yeah, and you mentioned this idea of how you can use WireGuard to make those connections from like my developer machine to my Fly instance. And I've actually done that, and I've actually put together a little guide on how you can do that. I can connect my local machine to my deployed production instance and open up Observer locally and over the WireGuard connection, have that happening. And it's just, it works so well. And I've never had it like drop a connection or anything. It's just, it's awesome. No, everything that breaks is our fault. It's never WireGuard's fault. <laughs> the other um, really cool thing about WireGuard like this is I'm actually connected to my apps privately from my phone. So if you're shipping like a almost like a back office type UI for managing your application stuff or something like um, like Livebook's amazing for this. If you want to deploy that to a private network, using WireGuard gave us the ability for me to connect with my phone to actually use that tool in a secure way without me to expose it to the broader public internet. So it's been a very powerful... We, we, we abuse WireGuard a lot. If you actually... Um, when you download our CLI and you run fly SSH console, we actually create a user land WireGuard connection. So there's not a new interface on your machine and then SSH over that to your VMs to get you connected to them, which is it's the Heroku experience, but with like a secure private network instead of being just wildly insecure, like exposing databases, the public internet is. This sounds familiar to a, a Cloudflare solution. Do you know which one I'm talking about? Zero trust private networking. Yeah, that one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> We're a little lower level than this. So the there's a company called Tailscale that is doing zero trust private networking with with WireGuard. Ours is so we're like infrastructure level private networks and then Tailscale and then what Cloudflare are doing are more more kind of actually replacing a VPN and letting untrusted clients connect to private networks to do things like use something like Livebook. On Fly right now, you wouldn't want to give like anyone at an organization WireGuard access to your infrastructure, which is right. kind of what I get with my phone because uh, that's kind of not the best idea. But um, something like you could plug in something like TailScale, you could probably use the Cloudflare Zero Trust Private Networking to, to bridge people into your application networks. So it sounds like this stuff is kind of what sets Fly.io apart because you can cluster on any platform. Like I can deploy my app in Virginia and in Oregon on any platform, right, to get that resilience or whatever. But I can't necessarily very easily go cross 
major regions and cluster distributed applications at the same time without ingress, fees, pain, suffering, and complexity, right? But with Fly, it's just like you launch it and you're good to go. Like you can cluster distributed, majorly distributed with, with zero effort on the developer's part. And that sounds like what kind of sets Fly apart. Yes. I guess one of my follow-up questions would be like, what about the database? Because you had talked about what if I could get a row closer to a user? How's that kind of work? I think we have a pretty good take for Postgres, but we're still, I think we're still learning how, how like distributed databases are actually going to happen in the future. What we ended up shipping was most people are familiar with Postgres read replicas. They sort of understand that like I can write to one database, I can read from another and I can scale out in that way. And so we ended up shipping was geo read replicas. So you run your Postgres cluster in a primary region, we call it like Chicago. And I always say Chicago because I just use a city close to me. Um, actually, there's a, as a diversion, there's a stupid funny story here. A lot of people are really excited about how fast Fly seems because all we do when they first deploy an app is we put it in the city they're closest to. We don't really ask. We just do it. And they're always <laughs> amazed because they haven't seen an app there before. And so it's like not magic. It's just like, no, no, it's just in, it's just where you happen to be. Anyway, so uh, my primary region is Chicago because I live here. And so in our scheme, what happens is you deploy your primary database to Chicago. That's where all rights have to happen. You deploy your geo replicas to like Santiago, Chile or Sydney or wherever your users happen to be. And you can perform reads from those. What we ended up, and we have a, we have a whole blog post about this because it's actually a, I would call it like a really simple to conceptualize hack. But what we did is we solved this in a way that's, I think, non-intuitive to people. What happens is if you run an application with a read replica in Sydney and a writable instance in Chicago, your application basically knows it can do reads from there, but it's not really aware of when it tries to write to a database, or at least we're not aware from the outside of when a request needs to write to a database. So what we did is like, how do we solve this in an HTTP world where it's request kind of post get based, right? Not live view in this context just yet. And so what we did is we made it so you can capture the Postgres read only exception that happens in Sydney when a request comes in. And then you can tell our proxy to just send reroute the entire request back to Chicago because we know it needs to do a write at this point. And so the effect is a request comes in, we just guess and send it to the closest possible application instance. That application tries to do its thing. Um, if it just reads from the database, it successfully returns a response. If it tries to write to the database, it captures the error and it says, hey, I can't handle this. You need to ship this, replay this whole request back to Chicago so I can do a write. And then all the writes happen in Chicago, and then the result of that request goes back to the user. This is sort of like the network. We're basically, again, trying to make applications that exist work globally. Uh, and this ended up being a reasonably simple way for developers to make, the, again, their stupid, boring Rails app. And I say stupid, and I write stupid, boring Rails apps, but a way to make a stupid, boring Rails app run in three or four different regions with, like, no architectural changes. You really just have to handle an exception. Um, we actually shipped a Rails gem for this, so you just drop the gem in, and it just works. It's not. It's not a complicated problem to solve. Oh, so it's on the application layer that has to handle the exception and reroute it to wherever the right cluster database is. The application layer has to handle the exception and then tell us where the database cluster is. And so we handle rerouting the whole request. You don't have to do any of that work. But all of our, basically, our global database feature happens before the application. It's it's out at the proxy level. It's not anything that's special to the database. Interesting. So then I suppose, like, the applications might also need to consider eventual consistency. Because if you, like, write one second away and then you turn around and refresh a page and try to read 
an index page, that new record might not be there yet. We have a fix for this. So what actually happens is, or what you can do is when you write to the primary, like Chicago, I'll just keep saying Chicago for the primary region. When a request goes to Chicago and does a write, what we actually do is set a cookie that says for the next 10 seconds, keep sending requests to Chicago. Developers don't love eventual consistency because it's complicated and <laughs> I don't love it either. Um, so what we're trying to do is keep things as strongly consistent from the user's perspective as possible. Uh, in practice, what happens is you can almost ignore this problem for a broad class of applications. If people aren't going to, if it's not really damaging to see stale content, most of the time the data replicates before the next request can come in. And so a lot of, if you're building like a blog or a forum or, or kind of that level of thing, you can almost just ignore the problem because it will work 99% of the time. But again, we don't want people to have to think about consistency. So we're trying to make that portion as easy to do as possible. You mentioned back in there, like the idea of databases and maybe even like the future of databases. Is there anything else you can kind of share on like what your vision is of how that might go? Yeah. I think the root question of how do we handle databases is um, it's actually super interesting because it's a really good question. So if you if you buy this premise that apps should run close to users, which I think is, I mean, it's obvious to me. I think maybe people would argue that that's not necessary. But if you buy that, you sort of start like where the data lives becomes a big problem, both for mostly for performance regions, but also for things like compliance with things like the GDPR, um, the other problems that devs now have to think about in the 2020s. We can't really inflict databases on devs. We can The best we can do is take what they're already using and make it work as well as possible. And so that's where we got with Postgres. I think that if you're thinking about this problem, there's I think there's two parts to think about for almost like architecting a new application for a global audience. One is actually baked into Elixir, so you all have a huge advantage here, where there's this, there's actually two things that need to happen here. One is app processes need to be able to talk to each other, and then they need to be able to store data. And one of the reasons it's helpful to be able to cluster and then also store data is you can end up controlling a lot of a UI, particularly in something like the live view world, just by chatting over clustering. So when we go back to this eventual consistency problem, one solution for this is actually to do the write to the database, but deliver the updates to the other clients uh, through basically a side channel. And so this is how something like Slack works, is when you broadcast a message, the message gets broadcast to all the connected clients, and it also goes to the database. So Elixir has a huge leg up here, where particularly with like Phoenix PubSub, it makes it really easy to make application processes talk to each other and then update the client with new data separate from what gets written to the database. Um, other frameworks are, again, I, I keep talking about NATS, but other frameworks, I think, need to learn about this. Most developers are stuck in this world where they go to something like a PubSub service that still just runs in one region, which is wrong. Um, if you have a user in Australia and a user in Singapore and you have to go through Virginia to send a message between those users, you're just causing all kinds of pain. And we have like peer-to-peer technologies. It's not necessary anymore. Um, the other part is how data actually gets stored. So in our model, what you have is a primary region where all the writes happen, something like Chicago, which is probably okay for most read-heavy applications, even if they're running in some place like Singapore or Sydney that's 400-ish milliseconds round-trip time. And mostly this is because the types of requests that do writes aren't as speed-sensitive as the types of requests that do reads. So if you imagine browsing a shopping cart, and loading up your shopping cart, if that's all fast and then actually clicking the checkout button when you put your payment information in is kind of slow, you probably don't care. You're like committed at that point. It's not as, it's not as big a deal. You're not going to lose customers that way. 
what happens when companies grow up, like um, Shopify, for example, actually runs all of their regions have a writable database and they actually pin a store to a particular region based on where that store's owner lives. So people in Sydney, the whole checkout process actually happens in Australia for stores based in Australia. That's complicated. You have to run, you know, 20 different database clusters to make that work. It's worth it for Shopify. I think what's probably going to happen here is, well, A, it's hard to bet against Postgres because it's like 25 years old and still still going strong at this point. Uh, it has JSONB, which didn't exist back when Postgres started, and they're actually really good at adapting to these things. But I think kind of the future of databases is going to be that ability to put primary chunks of data in the regions you need it, still do the read replica model, but kind of this is all native to the database instead of being something that happens in our proxy. And so you've got CockroachDB and Yugabyte that are Postgres compatible. They give you a bunch of tooling for stuff like this. There's things like Citus, the Postgres kind of an extension that is now part of Microsoft that give you some tooling for this. Basically, the problem becomes sharding. And I think the really interesting thing here is, is developers to take advantage of modern databases are actually going to have to, they're going to have to start modeling their data schemas with almost like latency in mind. Like if you're building an e-commerce system, developers are going to have to start thinking about where the store's data should live, particularly for both performance and something like GDPR. And so if you're interested in these things, it's it's actually kind of worth playing around with this stuff way early. And this is self-serving. We built our infrastructure specifically so you could run future databases on Fly. Our Postgres is just another Fly app. There's nothing really special on the platform about it. You can, you can go use Mongo if you feel like it. <laughs> um, you can use Cockroach. You can use Yugabyte. But playing with, I think, I mean, obviously, I'm on company number two, and we're talking about databases still. I think databases are fascinating, and I think it's, I feel like the the kind of the full stack framework in front of the database evolves uh, and changes, and it's almost disposable in some ways. But the databases themselves are incredibly important for, I think, future applications. If if anyone wants to learn about things, databases are kind of still the fun thing to read about. Kurt, that sounds that sounds really amazing, and it really kind of sounds like the holy grail of you know of of distributed processing. I feel like Elixir has, and, and Erlang, of course, uh, ha- has it on the app side, fairly solved, pretty much solved, <laughs> right? Yes. And if the rest of the infrastructure can catch up to that to be just as enjoyable, I think uh, I think Fly will, you know, will be a go-to platform. And so, sounds like networking-wise, Fly is there, and we have good solutions today for the database. But there's always the future, and there's always better things that we can get to. So yeah, I'm very interested. I've I did not hear about Yugabyte before today, so I'm gonna have to check out them. And I've heard of CockroachDB, but I didn't realize that they were Postgres compatible. So I'm gonna have to go check them out too, just to see what other options are out there. But absolutely love Postgres, and yeah, always willing to bet on Postgres. If there was a solution out there for Postgres to do distributed, not distributed, what is it? Location sensitive rights, <laughs> that would be really really interesting. That would be a that would be a winner right there, I think. So if anyone out there knows about that or has any clues, you know, hit us up at Thinking Elixir on Twitter or fly.io on, on Twitter. Love to hear about it. Yeah. I just remember when I was first starting to learn Elixir, you know, a lot of the resources around how to do anything distributed was around Erlang resources. And I just remember seeing things like Joe Armstrong, you know, one of the creators of Erlang, some of the things that he would say and just some of the discussion I saw was like using these examples where you had a server in the UK and a server in New York. So it's cross ocean. And they're using these as examples of processes talking to each other 
and everything. And I was like, wow, that is so cool. I have no idea how to actually do that. I just kind of left with that. It's like, yeah, I know how to deploy my app, but I don't know how to actually do that. And that was that part of that whole DevOps making private networks talk to each other. And that was one of the things I just thought was so cool and exciting about Fly. It's like, oh yeah, obviously. Yeah, you can just totally do that. It just It just happens. I'll include some resources. Uh, I did some demos showing off how to do some of these things for Elixir because it, it makes it so you can start to think about apps that you just previously didn't think about doing. Like You're just like, oh, I could do an app that could do all this distributed thing, but oh, that's hard. I'm, I'm just going to do this other thing. And you just kind of discount the solutions that you could provide and just disregard them because you've kind of trained your brain to think this is the only way I can deliver something. It's like an, it almost feels like a native environment, right? With libcluster and just my, the WireGuard private networks, my nodes just find each other and wire up. And it's just such a lovely experience. So while we've got you here, Kurt, I am curious, like, are there any other features or future things coming that people could look forward to with the Fly platform? There's one, I think one really cool feature is you can actually, despite talking about HTTP, one is WebSockets are native, which is part of like implicitly why LiveView works pretty well on us. But you can actually turn off all of our TLS and HTTP handling and just accept raw TCP or UDP connections. It's easy to build like a DNS service, for example. Um, and I think really that's kind of my favorite. Like we're not going to get a ton of customers from it. But to me, I always looked at Heroku and was like, why can't I just build my own DNS service on top of something like Heroku? It doesn't. It's not impossible. It's just not built for that. And so it was very important for us to get out of the way as much as possible and let people do their own UDP. Um, if you want to experiment with stuff like Quick, you can actually just make that work. That's by far my favorite feature. But I think other features that are coming are kind of a lot of boring stuff. We kind of bypass some of the like, right now it's hard to run workers and web processes in the same application because we didn't need to solve that right off. But I think that hopefully what I'm hoping is over the next year, our UX actually kind of even for non-regional applications, surpasses what else is out there for Phoenix apps. I think that you should be able to run Fly Launch in an arbitrary Elixir directory and just get an app up and running without really having to worry about Docker or any of that other stuff. So that's the tease, I think. And I just wanted to throw out there, since I just recently learned about how you guys just launched Prometheus out of the box, which I think is really exciting. Like, How cool would it be to just run Fly Launch and have everything, distribution, metrics, logging, like... That'd be, that's awesome. So we don't have to go into the details of that, but I just wanted to throw that out there. I'm glad you mentioned that. I love that. I love that feature. I think in some ways we get to one of the, if we succeed as a company, we're in this kind of glorious position where we get to just do things the way they need to be done for most developers and save a whole bunch of people a lot of time. Um, hopefully not at the cost of power, but Prometheus metrics are maybe my favorite feature. Now that you reminded me of those, all of our features are my favorite features. If you <laughs> listen to me enough. Well, if people want to get in touch with you or follow you online or follow the progress of the platform, where should they go to do that? Our blog is is important and a thing that um, I think we are... It's probably the, the one place to go see the most important things we have going over the next couple of years. We're also on Twitter at fly.io. I'm Mr. Kurt on Twitter, if you like rabbit pictures. <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, but other than that, that's, that's where we're at. We're pretty, we're pretty chatty. So if you add us on Twitter or, or even come join our community discussion forums and talk, we, we're pretty responsive on those things. All right. Well, thank you, Kurt, for coming and joining us and talking about everything that you've been working on and kind of the, the mission you've taken on, which I think is a, an interesting and a challenging one. And hopefully you'll get to spend more time doing actual development too. <laughs> yes. Thank you, for, thank you for having me. And I do hope 
building things will be very fun. So sometime. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. And we hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.